morning, everybody. <laughs> so just before I share what I've prepared, when we were praying, I had something came to me quite strongly. It may have just been for me, but I'll share it in case it's for all of you. And I just remembered something I read a couple of years ago from a Christian leader in the Middle East, maybe when Syria was in such great turmoil. And they said, when we had our backs to the wall and we only had Jesus, it was then we discovered that Jesus was all we needed. So when our, when we, when our backs were to the wall and we only had Jesus, it was then we discovered that Jesus was all we needed. So we've had a really tricky week, so that might be for me, but maybe for somebody else as well. So our topic this morning is prayer. We've been doing a series of about five sessions, I think, looking at areas of Christian discipleship, some of the basic building blocks, I guess, and this is the last one. I apologise if you're expecting it to be Brian this morning. <laughs> he's, uh, he'll be here next week. So I think he's at the second service, but taking up the reins fully by next Sunday. So prayer. I think some of us groan inwardly when we hear that someone is going to preach about prayer. We prepare to feel guilty for the next 20 minutes because we know we don't pray enough, and some days, maybe not at all. So the first piece of good news is that I have no intention of making anyone feel guilty, and neither does God. God wants us to draw us lovingly into a deeper understanding of the privilege that we have in prayer. Perhaps he would love many of us to be praying more, but certainly not out of a guilty sense that we're not good enough for God and that we can never meet the demands that he makes on us. So what I'm hoping to do this morning is first to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Why does God ask us to pray in the first place? What's the point? And we're going to actually, in that, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, but don't worry, it is only going to take about 15 minutes, so don't, don't worry. And then I'm also going to use a six-minute video from one of my heroes, Pete Gregg, who was the founder of the international 24-7 prayer movement. Some of, us, some of us have studied the prayer course in our connect groups that Pete was one of the speakers on. So before I hand over to Pete, I'm going to take about 15 minutes to survey the Bible and understand what prayer is about in the big context of God's story and why, rightly understood, it's not a burdensome chore but a massive privilege. So let's begin right back in Genesis chapter 1 where we see how God creates Adam and Eve and gives them a role that is quite different from the rest of his creation. So we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then a verse from chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the first human beings are made God's vice regents. They are not just lounging in the sun eating fruit, as we might imagine. They are God's partners 
given significant roles in naming and managing God's creation. God gives them a gift of a wonderful and perfect place to live. He gives them huge authority and autonomy, but says there's just one thing he doesn't want them to do in the garden, not to eat of just one tree. So God's saying, here is my beautiful creation. It's for you. I want you to manage it and enjoy it. I want you to work out my loving plans for good in this place. So you need to do it my way. Sounds very fair and generous, but as we all know, we see in the very next chapter that Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to them and says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So in that critical moment in the first garden in the Bible, the first humans made a disastrous mistake. God had generously delegated authority over his creation to human beings. In that first garden, our ancestors used their free will to hand their authority to Satan. And as a result, sin, sickness, guilt, decay and death, evils that God never planned or intended, became part of his beautiful world. That's quite a disturbing idea, isn't it, that human beings handed authority to Satan. So where am I getting that from? Is it in scripture or is it a bit far-fetched? Well, I became aware of this one time when I was wrestling with the whole issue of prayer, that I believed God was calling me to get involved in some prayer teams and to be really committed to prayer for the nations of the world also having a bit of a feeling of what's this really all for? What's it about? Why is God asking me to do this? I was reading Matthew chapter 4 about the temptation of Jesus and I noticed there, perhaps for the first time really, how Satan claims to own the kingdoms of the world and Jesus doesn't deny it. The passage goes like this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan says in that passage that he can give Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, implying that they are owned and controlled by Satan. We know for elsewhere in scripture that Satan is the father of lies, so perhaps he's just lying about this too. The interesting thing is, though, that although Jesus vehemently rejects the request for worship, he doesn't refute Satan's statement that the kingdoms of the world were under Satan's authority. As I thought about this, I felt that God was telling me that he was serious in the beginning when he granted humans authority over his creation. It wasn't a gimmick. He, he really did it. He really handed over authority over his creation to human beings. 
God had generously delegated to the first human beings genuine power to manage his creation for good or for ill. They were not servants, they were his true partners. When even Adam disobeyed God's only instruction and believed Satan's lies, they ceded authority to Satan. God had given them the dignity of free will and he did not overrule their disastrous decision or immediately rescue them from the consequences of what they had done. But he did, as we all now know, have a plan to ultimately redeem them. So in prayer, and this is where this connects with prayer, I believe that we are God's partners in wresting authority back from Satan. Down through Old Testament history, we see foretastes and pictures of what is to come as God intervenes to deliver his people again and again. But we read, when the time had fully come, his plan to redeem the world from the consequences of handing control to Satan is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, not a good man, but God himself taking on human flesh, becoming a human being and reversing the curse of Genesis. He is referred to in Romans as the second Adam. It says there, the curse of sin and death came through the first Adam and redemption and life through Jesus the second Adam. But where Eve and Adam wanted to indulge themselves in the luscious fruit, Jesus willingly sacrifices himself and his own needs. Where Eve and Adam had sought increased power and knowledge, Jesus freely lays his power and his very life aside. Eve and Adam had said to God in their garden, not your will, but ours. Jesus kneeling in a second crucial garden in the Bible, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, reverses that as he prays, not my will, but yours. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So if the first human ceded control to Satan by rebelling against God, Jesus rested it back at the cross. The decisive and ultimate victory was won by Jesus, a human being acting in full obedience to God at the cross. The ultimate outcome of the war against Satan is secure, but the battles still continue. Satan is in his death throes. His days are numbered, but he has not yet been destroyed. As I was preparing, I did a brief survey of the letters of the New Testament to see if the idea that I mentioned from Matthew 4 about the kingdoms of the world being under the control of Satan is supported through those. And that's what we need to do, isn't it, when we have a a good idea or an insight that we think is from God, to go back to the Bible and look at it, particularly if it's something a bit new or different from what you've thought before. Does the Bible really support this, or is it just my good idea? And I invite you to do the same if some of you are feeling a bit sceptical about what I'm saying, go away and have a look whether you think the Bible supports it or not. Um, So these are some of the things that I found as I look through the epistles. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Satan is referred to as the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And later in Ephesians, the spiritual warfare passage, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, talking about an evil power that is still active after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Colossians 1 verse 2, we read that God has rescued us as believers 
from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, again indicating that there is a domain of darkness which is still active. In perhaps the clearest one of all, in John, 1 John 5 verse 19, we read, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Ultimately, in Revelation, I said we were going Genesis to Revelation, we read of Satan being thrown into the lake of fire, finally destroyed. And in Revelation 11 verse 15, we read, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And that two words, has become, implies a change from not being under the control of God to being fully under his control. I came across, I didn't have time to put them in the PowerPoint, but I came across a couple of others. Um, Jesus himself in John chapter 12 refers to Satan as it's translated either the ruler of this world or the prince of this world. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we hear Satan referred to as the god of this age. So there seems to be quite a lot of support there for this idea of Satan having a lot of control in what is happening in the world in these days. So what has all this got to do with prayer? This. I believe that God has not changed his grand design of creating a wonderful world with humans as his vice-regents. Despite the mess that we've made... We are still his partners and he chooses to work through us and not to bypass us and start over or do it without us. After the victory of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus hands his ongoing mission back to fallible human beings working in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has conquered Satan. His downfall is inevitable, but this victory has not yet been fully realised in every part of God's creation. I think that's the bit that remains a mystery, is why didn't God make that decisive and throw evil out altogether, but that we do live in this in-between time where the victory of Jesus has been accomplished but not yet fully realised in every, every part of creation. So despite the historic victory of Jesus, sin, sickness, death and despair are apparent all around us. I believe that in prayer, we as the faithful people of God welcome the will of God declare the victory of Jesus and use the authority that God has given us as his partners. We are applying that overall victory of Jesus to every specific situation. We are claiming back inch by inch, life by life, the territory that Jesus is entitled to because of his victory at the cross. So in prayer we say, My heart is your territory, you are Lord. Here in my life, may your will be done. Here in my family, here in my street, may your purposes be worked out. Across the UK, not your will, not sorry, not our will, but yours. In that that suffering family in Syria, I saw on the news, may your kingdom come. In that situation I read about in North Korea, May your good purposes be worked out. Jesus has accomplished the victory over Satan at the cross. In ourselves, we have no authority over Satan, but Jesus has delegated that power to us. In these days, Satan is still active, but Jesus has conquered. Jesus is Lord, and we should not fear Satan. He still has power, but he has to flee at the name of Jesus. 
It's not a close contest between Jesus and Satan battling it out. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the victorious one. And he calls us to be his partners, to apply and declare his victory over every human life, every square inch of territory on earth. So when we pray, we are not vaguely wishing that God might do something. We are using the authority that he has delegated to us to declare and agree with his good purposes for the world. When you look at prayer like that, it may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may be hard work, but it's certainly not boring. It's the most amazing privilege that our almighty God is saying to us, despite everything, I still don't want to do it without you. I'm going to hand over to Pete Gregg on video in a moment. I wish we could actually have him here, but he's just on video. Um, Pete refers to himself as the bewildered founder of the international 24-7 prayer movement. And Pete has also written two of the most helpful Christian books I've ever read, which I've brought along with me if anyone wants to have a look or even borrow them. One is called Dirty Glory, Go Where Your Best Prayers Take You. And the other one is called God on Mute, Engaging the Silence of Unanswered Prayer. We'll move on to the next screen up there. Um, so I highly recommend those. Or if you prefer listening and watching to reading, if you Google Pete Gregg's name, you'll find much engaging, inspiring, and honest teaching about prayer on YouTube and other similar places. The 24-7 prayer movement that Pete overall leads have also started producing an app called Lectio. That's up there on the screen. I know one or two others in church are using it, and Ian and I have started using it every day. It only takes six or seven minutes, and it's a wonderful way of reflecting on scripture and, and um, getting into prayer. Um, and helps us to really set the tone for the day. So I'm going to hand over to Pete, hopefully on the next slide. Prayer is, of course, our great privilege. It is our great Christian priority. And yet it can be really difficult. Life is full of confusion and questions disappointments and distractions from all around the world. 